You're listening to Just Ask the Question, Adventures in Reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. As usual, this is our uh, week in review show. We've got the Archbishop of Canterbury and the sacred uh, dealer of all things dark and matter in the, no, I'm sorry, God, it's just the hangover. Uh, with me as always, federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin, who may or may not be responsible for drone attacks. We'll talk about that later. And uh, editor-at-large from CQ Roll Call, John T. Bennett. And this week we're unraveling uh, head of our defense department, Austin, who's uh, out sick. Uh, the Houthis drama, Chris Christie is leaving the race. Looks like uh, Nikki Haley is surging in New Hampshire and Iowa. The Georgia DA, the prosecutor affair, Donald Trump up for five minutes in New York court, and Trump may not be able to use SEAL Team 6 to kill his opponents. That immunity plea. We've got election security coming up this fall. Uh, Mayorkas impeachment. And, of course, Hunter is indicted and in Congress. And good Lord, look at the NFL. So that's a lot to un unravel. So stick around. When we get back, we'll dive into it. We'll be right back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, welcome back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, with our weekly Week in Review, Just Ask the Press. With me, as always, former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin and editor-at-large from CQ Roll Call, John T. Bennett. And John, let's start talking about one of the things that uh, bothers me the most about the press. We suck. But uh, <laughs> to be honest, uh, let's talk a little bit about the Austin uh, uh, drama, which you brought up last week, and the Houthis. We have... Uh, uh, all kidding aside, we have, uh, you know, now esca this is a dictionary definition of escalation of an international crisis. We bomb them. There's a chance of a widening conflict in the Middle East, although press reports say neither Iran, who is backing the uh, separatists in Yemen, nor the United States say that we want an escalation of the conflict. And yet here we are. And I'm, I have sat on the receiving end of a couple of these and haven't been in the briefing room myself this week and have sat on some of the calls and looked at the briefing. And the one question we're not asking and have not asked John Kirby or anybody in this administration is why we have escalated and can we? what's our confidence that we can hold this escalation to what it is. They still deny it's even an escalation. It's frustrating for me. And you and I have spoken, and I know it's a bit of a frustration for you. Uh, bring us up to date. Well, of course, it's an escalation. I'm, I'm, I've also been curious more. I've tried to focus on what the administration officials are saying, and not which ain't for, much, <laughs> not much, uh, and not you know sometimes our um, unique choice of questions, and you know it it is trouble. Not I guess it is troubling. It's it's very questionable that they don't view this as an escalation that. They've avoided doing this um, really since since uh, the Biden administration came into office. 
it's not like the Houthis are a new problem. Now, they have stepped up attacks and just messing with, you know, container ships and other things on the Red Sea. That's and that's a big deal. This yeah. is a big this is a matter of international commerce and international security. So um, essentially, the best that that you can kind of piece this together is Joe Biden just had enough of it. And he's warned the Houthis. He's warned the Iranians multiple times. And every it was getting worse. And Joe Biden decided to do something about it. But when you do something, the other side is going to respond. The Houthis say they're going to respond. There is um, commentary out there saying that this is actually a net positive for the Houthis because it will help them get more support from you know various countries. And the number one on that list, of course, is is Iran. So um, this this will escalate the conflict inside Yemen. And, you know, one thing I don't know if the administration I, I think you're alluding to is I don't know if they've been asked, you know, are we prepared then to to step in more directly in that conflict? Yeah. Where does it and, end? And we have yeah, where does right, that? Yeah. Where is the finish line on this? Where do we you know, where does Joe Biden stop his involvement? And does does the U.S. now have to get. Uh, more involved in the conflict in Yemen because if you're if you're going to try to degrade the Houthis, that would be one way to do it, yeah. and it would be one way to weaken Iran's. Um, I, I I don't know if we could call it growing, but they're trying to grow their influence in the region. Right. So it would be one way to get at that too. And they haven't been asked that, and they certainly haven't offered up um, any information on it. Yeah, and it leaves me concerned. Look. For those who, you know, just a quick background on it. I mean, what they're doing is firing on in, in international waters on international s shipping. And so it, it there's a, a real economic component to this uh, for everyone. And, and, you know, internationally, there's a lot of goods and that pass through the Red Sea and bombing it is <laughs> brings prices up and costs lives. So I, I get all of the reasons the economic reasons and the military mm -hmm. reasons for doing what they're doing. But I'm really concerned about us in that briefing room and us as reporters asking the right questions to find out where this leads, because I'm telling you sitting on the outside, I have no clue as to where it's going right now. And I wonder if the administration does Michael. Well, let's, you know, back up for a second. Houthis sweep down into uh, Yemen from the north and disrupt what was, I guess, as democratically elected government as you get in Yemen. Um, they've been at war with this democratically elected government, as I understand it, for a decade or two. This Yemen is really a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And now using the Hamas-Israeli um, war as an excuse, they have stepped up their attacks on shipping in the Red Sea, saying that they're doing this, you know, sort of in solidarity um, with Hamas. The UN condemns it in an 11 to nothing vote. I think only China and Russia maybe um, abstained, abstained um, from it. And as you said, they've been warned and they've been warned and they've been warned. And at some point, you have to act or these warnings have no meaning. Um, and so 
the U.S. and the U.K. And were there not other, wasn't Bahrain and another country also yes. in, involved in, in the in the effort, so you have a multinational effort. effort that presumably occurs at after high-level conversations among these countries, and so you you put your marker down whether or not that causes the Houthis to, you know, sort of see some pride in this and say, well, look, you know, even the U.S., you know, sort of recognizes us as some vital fighting force or something um you know it's sort of like when you take credit for a a bombing uh why you would take credit for a bombing is complicated but you know a lot of it has to do with credibility you know, sort of credibility publicity and all that stuff so this is what's going on there but you're both right to say where does it lead and that's your you know responsibility as as press people to say where where are we going next? What is the strategic plan? What if the Houthis continue to do this? Uh, and um, if they haven't, you know, sort of learned their lesson and are going to go, you know, back north and let what was a peace process in Yemen return, wh where do we go? What's the answer? And that's a fair question that I don't know the answer to, but I don't think you cannot, you, you cannot act. And I mean, this war, this proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran has, you know, sort of devastated Yemen, which is the Arabs, Arab world's poorest country or among the poorest countries, um, as I understand it. And um, I think... Over 100 or 150, 200,000 people have been killed. And, you know, they compare this, have been comparing this humanitarian crisis in Yemen uh, to, you know, among the worst ever seen. So what do you do? Uh, that's why I ordered the strikes. Well, that's, and that, that's, <laughs> well, Michael, that's a brilliant defense for why you ordered the strikes. But, <laughs> But the question for me is, I, look, the reason why I want to know, and and John, you know this from covering defense, they game everything out. They did not take this effort lightly, or if they did, that's even more frightening. But they do this while Lloyd Austin is laid up, and we don't ask the question as to how this was gamed at, how this was done. And as you pointed out last week with Austin on the sidelines, now, they may say it's seamless as hell, and they have said it. John Kirby has been yeah. in the briefing room and said, oh, it's still seamless. He's still involved. Well, it's one thing to be on a Zoom call. It's another thing to be sitting next to the president and grabbing him by the arm and go, look, this is not what we want to do or this is what we right. want to do. There's a huge difference. And so I want to wrap up this with that conversation, John. I, I, yeah, yeah. I With the bombing, with our lack of questioning, and with Austin on the sideline, to me, this is a very – and, and with Michael calling the shots, you know, wanting the more strikes. Literally I, the shots. Literally. Yeah. That's the, to me, <clears throat> um, kidding aside with Michael, I know he I didn't mean, call yeah, the shots. I mean, Zeldin shoots more than Steph Curry, which yes. is incredible. <laughs> Far away. But that, that's a very that, good point, John. Yeah, that's a very good point. I'm telling you. <laughs> but that's a, but all get, you know, that's, it's a huge problem right now. And I yeah. don't think we're getting a hold of it. it, it 
wrap it up there. No, John Kirby, the uh, National Security Council spokesman, and if you believe reporting in Axios recently, he's basically the co-press secretary. Uh, let people can Google that uh, interesting piece. Uh, others have followed it. So John Kirby on Air Force One on Friday, excuse me, contended that um, nothing was different in the run-up to these the first strikes, which I believe were on Thursday. And that uh, Secretary Alston was, quote, fully engaged, end quote, including briefing the president multiple times <clears throat> on mission options and how they would carry it out and, and you know, everything that goes into it. But you're right. That's a, you make a very good point, Brian. You know, he's so he's at Walter Reed Medical Center in, in Bethesda, Maryland. Um, he's you know, he's getting great care from, you know, world class physicians. And that's great. We hope Secretary Alston fully recovers, of course. Um, and, you know, there, there are skiffs there, you know, secure rooms or structures that can handle um, the um, reviewing of classified documents and the discussion of them. You know, they have secure uh, phone lines, uh, teleconference lines. They have executive suites. Uh, listeners might remember that when then President Donald Trump got COVID, he stayed at Walter Reed in the presidential suite. There are similar suites for lower level government officials. I asked the NSC uh, Friday afternoon, just, you know, where is he at Walter Reed? Is he in a normal room? Is he in one of these executive suites? And I was just told uh, that he has access to a skiff. So, well, what the hell does that, that mean? <laughs> I know, I know. It's very vague. I know, very vague. I go so, into John right. Kirby's office. I've got access to a skiff. I'm in a skiff when I'm in his office. I, I I don't get that. That doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense. I thought, you know, that I thought that they would be a little more transparent here and and you know, maybe Biden maybe Biden okayed that that Austin used the presidential suite. Uh, that I believe that's happened before. Uh so they've been vague about that. They're vague about a lot of things. But the, you make the good point. You know, it's one thing to be on the phone with the president or on a video teleconference and, you know, the president's sitting in the situation room and Austin's face is on a screen. Um, that's one thing, but it it takes away exactly what you said, you know, those side conversations. Yep. Or the president, you know, someone else is speaking, CIA director, State Department, you know, what have you. Someone else is speaking and and President Biden sees Austin grimace or his facial expression changes or he just, you know, he doesn't seem that enthused. And then Biden pulls him aside um, after whatever, you know, after that briefing or that meeting and, and they have a one on one conversation. So it can it does limit that. I mean, you know, you're not going to pick everything up, especially if it's just a phone call. And I think they need to explain this better. How involved, you know, can can well, we need to ask it better? We need to ask. Is he medicated? Yeah. Is he on pain medication? Uh, no one would blame him for being on pain medication. But if he needs to take himself out of the game, he needs to take himself all the way out of the game. Right. And that those questions haven't really been asked. The questions and they've been fine questions. One thing that I'm noticing as I'm watching more uh, and covering the White House a little more is the the follow-up question is is dead yeah no point. shit you know they a, a few years ago in the nba it was the mid-range jumper is a lost art well we've forgotten that's our mid-range jumper and yeah. we don't have that in our bag anymore we don't have that in our in our in our skill set um 
And, you know, there are a lot of times I'm watching the briefing. We don't seem to listen to ourselves. Is We don't listen to others in the room. I mean, I, I watch the briefing and there's a question that gets, you know, a third of the way there. And and then they move on to another topic. And I'm screaming at my television or my laptop like, no, you have to keep going. Keep going. Um, well, that's the that's the that's the report. That's the sort of the dynamic in the press room, is it not? I mean, you guys, when you're in there, can stay on this, the same thread. You you know, if, if yeah. John asks, what's your favorite color? And they say, well, I'm not, we don't really have favorite colors. <clears throat> Brian, when he gets the next question, can say, I'm sorry, can we go back to this question about your favorite yeah. colors? Right. Um, but instead, everyone is looking for their own little That's right. two minutes. And yep. they don't, and so, I mean, I think, I find those press briefings infuriating from the standpoint of how the press can't keep a single conversation going, how they keep jumping all over the damn place and allows uh, the press officer, if he or she doesn't want to, to, right. to move to move right on. So, I mean, I that's, think it's sort of on you. Just ask the follow-up question. It should be the, the new name of your podcast. A, that, and by the way, <laughs> That's a great point. Joe Lockhart, and I, I can't remember who else it was, told me from the Clinton administration, when they would get up in front of us and they could feel them being zeroed in on one, one you know, one a reporter over here would ask a question and then a follow-up would go, well, wait a minute, you said this. And he goes, I knew that my dancing was done when they would get me in their crosshairs and I had to answer a question. We don't do that. We we don't work. Yeah, there, there's we don't work together like that in the briefing room. Uh, you know, we, you know, I, I started covering uh, and attending briefings at, you know, the last year of the Obama administration. We used to. Yeah, there were times back then, I've done it in the briefing room when it, you know, called on and then like, wait a second, you know, you told, you just said this to Peter, let's drill down a little more. Yeah. Um, We did it sometimes under Trump. Uh, well, the, we did it better thing. under Trump than we're doing it now. We didn't do yeah. it well under Trump. No, we didn't. Uh, th there were times where, you know, you could, when we worked together, um, kind of, I don't, I hate to say it like this, but um, you kind of back Sean or Sarah into a corner and then they get frazzled and, uh, you know, they, 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 they screw up and tell the truth. That's what you want to do. You want to keep at it and keep at it and keep coming. And they get a little flustered and, you know, you get a little bit of truth. And then, you know, the truth comes out as uh, radio's Don Geronimo. I yeah, used to say. <laughs> Speaking of truth coming out, the truth of all of this is this plays into the election. Um, this and, and with this, com this issue, it's one of the few issues that um, the Republicans one of the few newer issues, the economy being one, even though that's not really all that accurate in their portrayal of it. But this particular issue is starting to be heard on the campaign trail. And this comes to uh, comes before us as Chris Christie has you know, left the race. He had a mic drop, uh, said a few things about his opponents, then had a fairly good speech, left the uh, left the race. And so Nikki Haley is surging ahead in New Hampshire and perhaps Iowa. And she wants to make sure that our, uh, she's one of the ones who wants to make sure that uh, you can't retire till you're dead. So um, how does this, how does this affect the race? Michael, we'll start with you. Well, it doesn't appear at the moment to be having much of an effect in Iowa. 
where Trump leads by double-digit figures. And more importantly, in the data in the poll, it seems that Haley's supporters are far less enthusiastic, um, mildly to, I think it was not, mild to not that enthusiastic for her, whereas the Trump voters were extremely or very enthusiastic for him. So when you have weather at minus two, if you're mildly or not enthusiastic, likelihood is you'll stay home uh, and watch football, whereas the Trump people may um, find their way to the caucuses. So she may actually underperform what this poll uh, reflects if the weather you know, keeps people home. Another thing that was interesting to me in, in the poll, and you guys can comment on it, which was a little bit counterindicated to me with her numbers going up a bit. And it, it said that her favor, favorability rating in the state overall dropped from December uh, to now from 59% to 48%. And her unfavorable rating rose from 31 to to 46%. So even though her total whole number of 20% had, had inched up, people are not enthusiastic and her unfavorability numbers are increasing. That's not good for, for candidates. So I can't figure out exactly where they take this. She maybe ekes out a win in New Hampshire, gets clobbered probably in her home state of, of South Carolina, maybe does better in Michigan, which is an open primary state. And then you get to Super Tuesday. So, I, you know, I don't, this thing could be over um, <clears throat> sooner than not. Well, and weather will have a lot to play. Uh, Monday is supposed to be record low temperatures in Iowa. There's snow cover there. How many people get up and get uh, involved in the caucuses is a good question. And, you know, cold weather, bad weather is usually something that doesn't bode well for participation in electoral events, except if you're a crazy and Donald Trump attracts those like, you know, bees to honey. So, uh, John, uh, Christie leaving the race, Haley surging in New Hampshire and Iowa, the unfavorable ratings. Michael, after a carpet bombing Yemen, has decided that uh, <laughs> that it could be a bad thing for uh, going forward, um, and and he's not wrong. I mean, it, it could. It, it, there are those who think this well could be over with by Super Tuesday. Perhaps, uh, perhaps I'll I'll drop a hot take here and say this thing is already over. Ah. The nomination, it's over. There's She now has somehow, Haley, despite playing all this fairly well, the Civil War gaffe was a, a big problem. Um, she's, she's, by accepting the money, some of the money that she's accepted from some of the donors that she's accepted it from, she's now painted herself on an island of being the Democrat in the Republican primary, and that I think that that's going to that will be the dagger um, argument against her. That you know, okay, she's going up against Trump, maybe, and and I agree with Michael that you know she, she you know if if 
if she can, the game for her is to finish second in Iowa and have Trump come in under 50%. Juan Williams this morning on Fox News Sunday laid this out. I thought, and obviously I agree with him, um, you know, a good night for Trump is he's over 50% and Governor DeSantis finished second. A bad night, as as uh, Juan Williams laid out, a bad night for Trump is he's under 50% in Iowa and Haley finishes second and then on to New Hampshire. Uh, where you know she's within in some polls she's down in the single digits her deficit is is under 10 percent to donald trump but i think longer term it's a big problem to be even described as the establishment republican in the race because you're essentially a democrat and she's taking money we know um campaign donations from democratic donors i don't see a path for her after New Hampshire. I, I It's just not there. Um, I said this was going to be a clean sweep um, in the primary. And I was, until a couple days ago, I was ready to come off that and thinking she might win a state or two. But she's not had a good a good uh, week or two here. She's, she, I don't know if it's fatigue. Um, you know, this is a marathon. But ever since really the Really, the, the the debate before last, not the one-on-one -on -one with DeSantis. But it's DeSantis. not a logical one, really. I mean, I understand it's a marathon, but Donald Trump looks tired. Old, you've seen some of his recent things. I have, too. It's just, it's Donald Trump or nothing. I mean, that, that the, what's left of, yes. of the Republican Party is You're right. for Trump and screw you. That's right. The, the, the party is Donald Trump. Donald yeah. Trump is the party. That It's that simple. At least nationally, I mean, you know, independent house races or you know, governor races, um, you get less of that. But there's still Trump is still, as a as a a, a former colleague who I, I saw um, um, in the Capitol this week as we were both chasing lawmakers around hallways, um, <laughs> as as this uh, gentleman who I have a lot of respect for and he's been doing this a long time, he said Trump is still the only fucking game in town. Pardon yeah. my language. Yeah. But but, you know, the expletive makes the point. Yeah. And he is the only show. And, you know, Nikki Haley polls in a lot of polls better in a one on one matchup uh, with Joe Biden. Yeah. And, you know, she's a very conservative individual. Um, you mentioned her Medicare and Social Security, um, what she wants to do, uh, extend the eligibility deadline until all of us are older. Um, you know, or dead. She, does have a, she has a more moderate stance on abortion, and that's a problem as well. Um, the party is a is, is a purity party, and she, you know, she's taken from Democratic donors. That doesn't yet. hurt her on a national stage. It hurts her on a Republican stage. Well, and especially in Iowa. It, but, yeah. but remember, what's gonna what's gonna matter also in November is turnout, and you know, if if she's if she's painted by other Republicans as too pro-choice, right, then people might stay home. And she's not Donald Trump, even though she does poll better against Biden. So I think that's one of the reasons why she does poll better, because of her moderation on right. that. I mean, she, at least she's in the she may not be in the late 20th century, but she's you know, she's, she's not going to charge people with murder if they get an abortion. So that's. Yeah. That, yeah, does you know, get, that, that will get her some crossover votes. The question mm -hmm. will be, the uh, people who stay home outweigh those who will turn out for her. Right. So, uh, yeah. but we're in, in a way. Go ahead. 
Yeah, in a way, I don't want to say that that you can't really say that Haley's in a slide, a downward slide, because she's polling better. But I just think there are a lot of problematic things that have crept up. And it's actually, you would expect that because she was, at least the perception was that she was kind of surging. I disagree with the use of the word surge. I, can you surge from 9% to 13%? Is that a, is that a surge? I, I don't think so. Other people do. Other people do. Um, so, well, that's another, that's for another, uh, another show, maybe. I, I surged but, to second place. But the perception of this surge meant that the other candidates were going to come harder at her and the media was going to be become more skeptical and, and more looking at it with a more critical lens. So, you know, it's just like when a team uh, that's been, you know, fairly mediocre, you know, ranked 20th in the country, you know, th they beat a couple ranked teams and they're suddenly ninth in the country. Well, they're going to get they're going to get everybody's best shot for a little bit. Yeah, uh, look at James Madison, for example. Uh, they were ranked, and they're not ranked anymore in, in men's basketball because you know it's easy to get up for the 18th team in the country. So you would expect this. She still has time, and you know for her, the whole ball game is really New Hampshire. And if you know if she can pull the upset there, the problem then is it's on to South Carolina, her home state. She was governor there for a long and time. She's going to lose she, that state. She trails Trump in her own state by 30 points in most polls. So I, I, I agree with Michael. Uh, I think it's already over. I think by the time the polls close in South Carolina, um, it'll, it'll be the beginning of the end. And who knows if, if DeSantis is even still around by then. And with that wonderful thought, I will leave it on this. We'll take a short break. But uh, Larry Hogan, the former governor of Maryland, came out today and endorsed Nikki Haley. So, you know, she's in trouble. So <laughs> we'll take a short break. We're going to look at more of the election, but from the other side, from the Trump side, when we come back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth with Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karen, with our weekly Just Ask the Press review of the news of the week. And as we begin this, <laughs> as we begin this uh, section, let's talk a, a little bit about, you know, we started talking about the election, the coming election from the opponent's of Donald Trump angle. Um, and let's now talk a little bit about uh, Trump himself. He, uh, his, his lawyers in court argued that he has a right to uh, immunity, unlimited immunity, and that he could have a right to uh, use SEAL Team 6 to off an opponent and then sit back peacefully in his retirement and enjoy himself. He was told he couldn't, he couldn't speak in, the, uh, in his uh, trial in New York in summation, yet he did get up and give a five-minute filibuster. Then the in Georgia, there's talk of the DA and that uh, prosecution of him in Georgia being sour because of an alleged affair between the DA and the special prosecutor. And of course, Donald Trump is maintaining that Jack Smith isn't 
a legitimate prosecutor. And so all of the charges against him should be thrown out. With that, I there was a lot to unpack there, Michael. Let's start with uh, let's start with the immunity. Uh, were you surprised by that? Well, yes and no. I mean, they're in a difficult position. They can argue, as they essentially did, that former presidents have absolute immunity from criminal prosecution for acts undertaken in the course of their duties, although the in the course of their duties part of it was not as emphasized in the argument as they have absolute immunity. So they were asked a hypothetical by the court to say, uh, do you mean if the uh, SEAL Team 6 was ordered to kill an opponent, he could not be charged with that murder? And the answer was yes, unless he was <clears throat> impeached in the House and convicted in the Senate. So their line in the sand is, you can charge a former president for criminal conduct after he leaves office only if he's been impeached and convicted in the Senate. And that, that was their bottom line. So if you take that position that impeachment and then conviction in the Senate is a prerequisite for criminal act, then every hypothetical you ask, more or less, the answer is going to be the same. No, unless he's been convicted in the Senate. I think that it came off terribly um, because the headlines were that President Trump believes he could kill his opponents um, and get away with it. Um, whereas I think the argument could have been more nuanced to say that if they are, if the acts undertaken by the president in his official capacity, form the basis for the prospective prosecution once he leaves office, then he should have immunity. So it's a qualified immunity, similar to the- But they don't argue qualified immunity. They are no, they did. absolute. They, they, they did. Um, you know, in the civil context, Bill Clinton was able to be sued while still president because the acts that gave rise to his lawsuit, the Paula Jones- stuff was not part of his official duties. And so he was allowed to be sued. And it seemed to me that the emphasis, now they may have a default, you know, um, a backstop position of, well, if you don't buy the absolute immunity stuff, then you have to look at his official duties issues. And yes, he was in fact engaged in election um, security related stuff. And so this was in his official duties. I just think the way that they argued it um, put them in a very bad place as a public relations matter and and with the court. The court did ultimately ask questions about uh, that which was in the scope of one's duty. But I think Trump's lawyer should have said it differently. But, you know, it's a difficult argument to make because if they say, all right, well, fine, we grant you that if there are acts within the official duties, then there are circumstances where he could have some form of qualified immunity. Let's now turn to what Trump did and ask you, counsel, was that in the scope of his official duties? Then you get into this, you know, again, I think loser of an argument that Trump was engaged in, you know, integrity of our elections and all that sort of stuff. And yes, it was uh, in the course of his official duties. So I think sort of either way, they lose that argument. So in some sense, they went all in on the absolute immunity, 
And I think yeah, they it, did well, well, that let me interrupt because, you. Brian, they they will try to make that same argument to the Supreme Court and hope that they have a better audience there. Well, it isn't. But at the end of the day, look, the uh, in the argument against that absolute immunity, simply if the president had absolute immunity, why did Gerald Ford have to pardon Richard Nixon? Of course. Of course. And of course, the same thing, the same sort of get out of free jail argument was made by Jamie Raskin when they were saying in the impeachment, well, since Donald Trump has left office, he can't be um, convicted here in the Senate. And that's, you know, that was the off ramp that Mitch McConnell um, used, which, you know, as it turned out, uh, was a disaster. McConnell, remember, he says, I'm voting to acquit only because Trump has left office. And as a private citizen, Trump, he'll be held accountable in the criminal justice system. And that's why I feel comfortable in my argument. Well, of course, he was wrong. He could have been um, convicted in the Senate because the impeachment charges were brought while he was still president. That's the predicate, not where he was at the time of the um, trial. And of course, now McConnell is being argued against, if you will, by Trump to say that he can't be um, indicted in the criminal um, trial. And what Jamie Raskin said was that if you buy this notion of these off ramps, then presidents have you know complete and absolute immunity from accountability. In Raskin's argument, he said, and the same thing was made by Smith's lawyers in court. If you think that he has to be convicted in the Senate in an impeachment trial, then here's your hypothetical. Two days before the president's term ends or a month before the president's terms end, he, he sells nuclear secrets, he sells pardons, he engages all sorts of criminal conduct, blatantly criminal conduct. He does order the SEAL Team 6 to do all this killing and they do it under the orders of the president. And then he resigns. And then he resigns. And so he's no longer president and he can't be impeached. Yet he's gotten away with all Murder. of this act, all of these um, crimes. That's the stupidity of the argument. And we'll see how the court, um, you know, analyzes it. But it's hard to imagine accepting such a proposition. Yeah, that's well. And uh, the other thing we have a hard time accepting. And, and John, this is one that, you know, Trump for five minutes in a New York court during the uh, during the summation of his uh, um, fraud civil trial there proclaimed that he was, in fact, defrauded. He again was the victim. Um, this is not unusual from Donald Trump. Uh, Michael, you've spoken to it. But, John, that's to me the epitome of Donald Trump. I I'm your savior and I'm your victim. And he's on a revenge tour and he says he'll always love you because he's a victim. Yeah. Play victim and blame everyone else. You know, <laughs> you're right. That's just well, but, and can I add, John, one other one other um, uh, clause in that sentence is and say he's doing this for you. Yeah. Right. Right. If they could do this to me, they could do it to you. So he's, Isn't you know, that he's, the same way as saying no one is above the law? <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, I suppose so. I suppose so. At that, the end that of is, the day, I mean, every time I hear them say that if they if they can do this to me, they can do it to you. I'm going, yeah, if you break a law, 
if you're a criminal, you anyone should is but and I remember here's the thing that pisses me off about all of it. I remember the day in the uh, White House briefing room when I asked Sarah Huckabee Sanders, I said, does the president think that he's above the law? She said, of course not. No, we would never make that claim. And yet that's what his claim has been from day one. Yeah. And another thing about the argument um, is, and I believe one of the the appellate judges asked this question during just a remarkable hearing the other day, um, asked Trump's lawyers, um, this is the opposite of what other Trump lawyers argued during one of the Senate impeachment trials. Back then they said, well, you know, he won't be president and the, the criminal courts are where this should should play out, not, you know, not not in the Senate chamber. And now they're arguing the opposite. So um, <laughs> that there's no, uh, the, you know, there's no logic really here. And the 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 three appellate judges did not sound at all impressed with the trump team's argument um i mean you saw on immunity you're talking about immunity. after yeah you saw headlines after that and took a scalpel to it uh you know they they roasted them we don't we don't trot those headlines out uh every day <laughs> okay those are special headlines everybody <laughs> and and but but they came out tuesday and for good reason <laughs> So, so Michael, let, let me ask you, is that uh, you think he has any chance of having uh, his immunity defended? It's, this is going to end up at the Supreme Court, isn't it? Well, it could, but, you know, there's an interesting little sort of wrinkle to this, which is Jack Smith, thinking that, well, this is going to end up in the Supreme Court anyway, asked the Supreme Court to skip this middle uh, court and just take it straight away. And the court said, no, thank you. We want to we want to hear from them, and so if this intermediary court comes out with a three to zero forceful ruling, saying Ooh. that the argument is unfounded, where you're going historically and all this stuff, maybe the Supreme Court says, you know what, we don't need to take this case. That's and, I've, I've and, thought about that too. Are they did they the Supreme Court make a strategic move so they don't have to take up this issue? Yeah, they may not have to. I mean, if again, these are two Biden and one George H.W. Bush um, judges. Henderson, the H.W. Bush judge, is, you know, a pretty conservative judge. And if they come out with a 3 nothing forceful decision, it may give the Supreme Court the off-ramp um, of saying this has been decided and we decline cert. And there's some logic to that in the sense that this seems to be a uh, you know, relatively straightforward uh, case from uh, impu- immunity shouldn't be granted. In the oral argument, um, Trump's lawyers raised the question of, well, if former, o- former President Obama um, ordered drone strikes, as he did, and, and American citizens abroad were killed, could we charge him under, you know, sort of violations of international criminal law and all that sort of stuff. And aren't you opening the door for that if you don't grant absolute immunity? Well, the Supreme Court might say, well, you know what? The Trump case is straightforward. The facts are pretty clear. Insurrection is not really a tolerable act. But if someone were to bring a case like that against the former president for George W. Bush's border policy or Biden's border policy or Biden or 
um, my Hutu strikes, um, you know, we want to bring that, then the Supreme Court say, well, look, look, under those circumstances, we're going to evaluate what constitutes official acts. And so we're going to wait for that sort of case to come to us right. to decide this immunity question. We don't need to do it on something that's as black and stupid. white as this one. It's, yeah. it's stupid. Isn't so, it? you know, so you'd think that it's headed to the Supreme Court, but it may not end up there depending on what the Court of Appeals um, says and how uh, forcefully and unanimously it says it. If it says it in a two to one decision or if, you know, they have a unanimous decision, but it's this is a close case and language that's a little bit more squishy, then the Supreme Court, I think, probably is under a little bit more pressure to take it themselves. So we'll see how they they order it. And hopefully they'll get their you know decision out in the next um, week or two, you know, or three. Yeah, that's uh, so the last the trifecta that I had brought up, the last one, and I guess the more curious of all this is. The state charges, if Donald Trump is reelected, if we go down that path and he ends up reelecting, getting reelected, he could get rid of all the federal charges, supposedly, you know, grant himself immunity from that or, mm-hmm. uh, or, or <laughs> so give himself a pass. But the one he couldn't is Georgia. Yet in Georgia, in I believe it's February, there's going to be a hearing over the Georgia DA, uh, Willis, and the prosecutor, the special prosecutor, being involved in an extramarital affair. How serious, Michael, is this a challenge to the charges against Donald Trump in Georgia? Well, let's <laughs> take a step back and see what's at play here. This guy, Wade, who is the special counsel that the DA Fannie Willis brought in, is in a very bitter divorce. And in that divorce case, uh, his wife has made certain allegations about him and extramarital uh, uh, affairs. And in fact, Wade was held in contempt um, in the divorce course for not putting his record, his documents in the records that were subpoenaed for him. So one of the co-defendants in the Georgia case, the Republican operative Roman, files a motion picking up on the divorce filings by the wife um, and says they had an affair. There was no factual basis for it, but he's just, you know, sort of riffing on what the wife says in the divorce proceedings. So the judge, um, McAfee, Scott McAfee, says, let's have a hearing about this. I want to hear from the parties about this. Now, so if the question is, does this undermine the integrity of the prosecution itself. Is this a basis by which the uh, indictment will be dismissed in Georgia? I think the answer is no. Could it cause the judge to disqualify Fannie Willis or um, Wade from, from Nathan Wade from um, prosecuting the case individually? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe he says, you know, this this is a terrible appearance, and I'm going to ask, I'm going to recuse you two from the case. Remember, this happened to Willis um, previously. She she held a fundraiser um, for someone who who was a co-defendant in this case, 
Oh God, Bert Jones, I think his name yep. is. He was an elector, right? And she and and um, he's like the current lieutenant governor anyway. And, and Fannie Willis held a um, fundraiser for his opponent, and the judge said, "No, that's not possible. You can't hold a fundraiser for this guy's opponent, and then prosecute him. You're out." And there, the um, Prosecuting Attorneys Council of Georgia is still looking for someone now to prosecute that case against mm. Burt Jones. So the judge could say, uh, if there's truth to it, if there's truth to the fact that Wade was hired by Willis, they're in an affair, Wade has made $600,000 in fees for this, um, and that they are enjoying the spoils of 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 those fees, he might say, look, I don't, I don't like this appearance. Um, and we need new prosecutors. But all that results in is new prosecutors and a lot of argument that Trump can make to a jury in, um, in Georgia delay, delay, that says delay. this is, no, no, yes, yes, I should say yes. And it also is an argument to the jurors to say, you see how political this is this is just a political shit show and you should acquit me no matter what because it, it, i'm being persecuted by uh now not only a democratically elected prosecutor but one whose ethics um were you know sort of chastised by the court so come on jurors you can't you can't allow this to happen so there's an argument that they can be made you know the judge has to be very careful about allowing that sort of argument because it's ju it's jury nullification and that really is not technically allowed but sometimes you don't have to say things to say things there you go john it's we all this is all part of the appearance versus reality of donald trump he's just going to use it no matter what to delay and to push his but it 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 you can see the concerted effort the trump team is making to either have everything thrown out or everything in question so he can still maintain his uh, his tour. And he, he is campaigning in court, right? I oh. mean, uh -huh. yeah. I believe I tweeted uh, on Tuesday, or was it Thursday, one of those days that he was in court, that we just had the first presidential campaign moment inside a courtroom. Yeah. And and it's just incredible. He's, he's definitely doing that. He knows in the New York... Uh, case surrounding his businesses i you know i don't think it takes um a great legal mind like michael zeldin's to realize that um the judge has already found that the trump businesses uh broke the law and, and did all sorts of uh, shenanigans and, and trump used that um and, and now they're in the sentencing phase and you know i trump probably realizes that it's going to be a pretty stiff penalty so why not stand up and 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 do a little campaigning. He knows it's going to get covered. He knows it's going to be you know driving the news cycle for the rest of the day and maybe into the next day. So it's almost a no-brainer that 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 he pulled that. Um I was surprised that the judge reversed reversed the decision and you know first Trump was going to speak and then he wasn't going to be allowed. Right. And by midday the judge has has reversed and, and Trump is speaking in court. So, you know, it's just, I, I tweeted this too. It's just another episode of the Trump show. Yeah, it is. It's just, yeah, that's, 
And, and, and I'll say this, and this and is kind of a Trump show. Yeah, th and there'll be another one tomorrow. But there, I sensed something kind of in the punditry world this week, and and being on the Hill talking to some Democrats uh, for a story that'll be up on roll call on Tuesday. Democrats are concerned about the Biden campaign. And part yes. of that concern is just the Trump freight train. It's fully loaded. It's heading downhill. And that sucker's got no brakes. And they know that. Yeah, they're just hoping it runs and off the rails. That's the, that's the that's only the thing. hope there. I What I started to sense, you know, watching stuff, talking to folks, being on the hill, there is a sense of inevitability forming around Trump. And I'm not saying that people are are predicting that he's going to win the general election, but I think it's starting to sink in with a lot of political professionals that he's got a very good shot at winning in November and being president again. I think it's starting to sink in. And well, we'll, we'll see. One it, of the it, it's, yeah, it, it I just noticed that this week. Yeah. This week it keeps up, but a lot of it was was Trump was so prominent in the news cycle this week. So we'll see. You know, if we ever get back to normal. Um, if, if that if, if that that sense it sticks. Well, one of the things that we've talked about, and this before we go to break, we'll we'll talk about this briefly. Is, you know, um, I sent you guys something that Robert uh, Reich had said that an indicated fake elector is now overseeing elections in rural Nevada. A Wisconsin fake elector remains on uh, Wisconsin's election commission. In Arizona, the Senate Election Committee Chairman and Judiciary Committee led uh, are both fake. Electors, pay attention, the coup's not over. So one of the ways that Donald Trump will try to seal his fate of being the 45th and 47th president, I guess, uh, doing what only one other president has done to non-consecutive uh, terms, is uh, sealing his fate by bringing these fake electors into uh, the mainstream. Uh, is that have, We haven't really discussed that much, nor have I seen much on it in the press. John, I'll, I'll let you pick it up from there. Yes, <laughs> John? <laughs> hang, on, hang on, I can't hear you. Hang on one second. Uh, well, <laughs> Michael, you want to you take a crack at that first then? Well, the, you know, the sub headline is, and the, and the coup continues, meaning <clears throat> just when we thought it was safe to go back in the water, we realized that a lot of these same election deniers are now running the apparatus um, of other of other states and you know we have to always be vigilant to you know these sleeper cells in 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 our democracy and so this is you know an evidence evidence of the fact that this um process has not ended and that you know one has to be vigilant in protecting democracy because it's you know it's authoritarianism is much easier okay thomas now, Jefferson, price uh, of liberty is eternal vigilance i agree yeah you know i actually told him i i penciled <laughs> that out i penciled that for, out for, for tom when he was over yeah. in my house <laughs> yeah he was over he's a he was a very nice guy tall too tall oh, red red haired kind, kind of like john yeah. had the same color hair yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so john your your take on it i mean Fake electors I, now in the mainstream, that's got to be concerning. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why Donald Trump 
sounds so confident. He doesn't really give a shit because he thinks at the end of the day he can manipulate like he couldn't manipulate in 2020. Well, this is the guy who uh, who got on the phone with the Georgia Secretary of State and said, find me you know, 11,000 and however many votes um, that that he needed to win Georgia uh, in 2020. So, you know, I fully expect shenanigans in November um, with with some of with some of these uh, fake electors that are now in in position to put their their thumb on the scales uh, in various states or various counties, various precincts in various ways, um, which is ironic because Trump says one thing that the the ah, excuse me easy for me to say one thing the democrats are best at and this is donald trump not me is, is stealing elections and now he's got fake electors in a position to uh influence the next election it's just it's incredible the way this guy um you know does stuff has admitted stuff is on tape doing stuff and then just say the other guy's doing it yeah and and his his supporters and a lot of Republicans just go along with it. They believe it um, as it's as if it's gospel. After all, it came from the mouth of the Donald. <laughs> and on that, the mouth of the Donald that that could be a book. Anyway, we're gonna we're gonna take a short break, and we come back. We have a lot more to unpack, so stick with us. <laughs> Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash JATQ podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, with our weekly catch-up on all that's news. Just Ask the Press, as usual, with me is former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldman and editor-at-large from CQ Roll Call, John T. Bennett. And We've been discussing the election and uh, a bunch of other drama in, in the world of politics. Man, I'm I, all right. I'm going to drop the other stuff that we because I got to talk about the NFL playoffs. They've delayed one game because of snow. We've seen some people in it that we didn't think we'd see in it. And Bill Belichick, by the way, just proved uh, the point for all his critics. He's He's stepping down and leaving, proving that he can't win if he can't cheat and doesn't have Tom Brady. But, uh, We'll start with you, John. Surprised by the playoffs at all? Surprised by the Houston Texans. Uh, Whoa. Know, the Cleveland, yeah, the Cleveland Browns, especially defensively, had been playing as well as anybody who – any team that qualified uh, for they the They were post my team this year. I wanted them. Yeah, and back. they just got boat raced by the Texans. C.J. Stroud, um, quarterback from uh, Ohio State, is having just an incredible season for such a to you know to be such a young starting quarterback. So the Texans definitely surprised. I um, I did not feel last night like participating in the Taylor Swift game. So I did not <laughs> I did not watch that. I did expect more out of the Dolphins offense. I know it was I know it was cold and and bad weather in Kansas City. Um, 
but the Dolphins, you know, the Dolphins were kind of the it team for a lot of the season, and and they didn't do um, they didn't do much of anything apparently last night. So what I am looking forward to is the the ritual in Buffalo. The the Bills have already put out word that they're going to pay um, they're going to pay fans who come to the stadium and dig it out before uh, their game tomorrow. We got rescheduled until Monday. And uh, the the Bills do this when they have these big lake effect snowstorms. Uh, they pay the fans to shovel out the stadium. That's always really cool. So I'm looking forward to that. And I, ju- I think two great games today, I hope, uh, Green Bay and Dallas. Uh, who do you uh, predict in that one? I have learned over the years, you never, never take Dallas in the playoffs. Just don't do it. It doesn't matter if it's Tony Romo or Dak Prescott. So give me the Packers. And uh, the Rams and Lions tonight, I think that'll be a great game. I have uh, some good buddies who are Lions fans, so go Lions. Yeah, and and I think the Rams will have something because uh, their quarterback is a former Detroit Lion, in case you don't know. And I think that that's yeah, going to yes. be that's going to be an interesting game. I'm picking the Rams there in the Green Bay versus Dallas. I you know I know a lot of Dallas fans who are already talking about the second round of the playoffs. They they think the Packers are they're going to run over the Packers and the curse is over and just because they're in the playoffs they're going to win the Super Bowl. So um I as a dedicated and long-time <clears throat> Packer fan, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to relish the thought of them defeating Dallas once again. Dallas never seems to have Green Bay's number or rarely Michael, so the quarterback taken number two in the draft, right? CJ yeah. Stroud yeah. is proving to be at age twenty-two one of the best quarterbacks in playoff history. He's, I think, the statistic was he's he's there with Joe Montana and 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 um, Brady, and that his numbers were that good. I think he had a Hairser rating of like 150 something or other in the first half of yesterday's uh, blowout of um, the Browns. So you got to love that story. I mean, this was a team that had won three games this previous season, I think, and now are in the second round of the playoffs, blowing out what I thought was a very good uh, Cleveland team who I in my heart was sort of rooting for because yeah, I like the Joe Flacco story too. You know, yeah. he's home with his parents and and he gets a call and then it's you know it's Kurt Warner all over again. Yeah, and that's right. I like I love those I love those um those fairy tale or a Nick Foles stories. story with Billy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um so good for good for CJ Stroud and and the Houston team. I've never rooted for a team from Texas in in my life, I still blame them for uh, John Kennedy's murder, and so I just can't root for the state. Period. Um, Damn. Uh, and so, therefore, um, I'm not rooting for the Dallas Cowboys. And as you guys said, the 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 storyline of Detroit and L.A. is just wonderful. It couldn't have been scripted better. I know the vanquished quarterback coming back. With the you know the opposing team to the home stadium, uh, you know it's it's just it's wonderful stuff. Um, that all said, I I almost always unless the New York Giants are playing, I almost always root for underdogs, and so I'm rooting for Detroit, the perennial 
underdog. When was it, John? Do you remember when they had a season where they had zero wins? Wasn't it? Weren't they as as zero and sixteen team? Oh, weren't they Detroit? Like the only one? Yeah, I can't remember yeah. when, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Detroit has won a title forever. This is, I mean, not no, no, but I mean, saying, yeah. but they, they, they haven't won a title for, forever. Yes. Um, and, um, but I think that they were not too long ago, uh, a zero. 2008. They, they finished zero. a full non-strike, you know, shortened season uh, with no wins or ties uh, since that was since the move to 16 games. There were there were some teams in the past, including the Packers, I think, that went one year winless uh, back in the 40s. But when, since yeah. going when, to 16 games, they were the yeah. first in 2008 to go completely winless. Yeah. And so you've got to, you know, so you got to root. I mean, just like I rooted. Yeah, I said I just said I never rooted for a Texas team, but I was glad to see the Rangers win the, the baseball because they hadn't won in a long time and I'm, I'm thinking of all these you know 90 something year old people sitting on their couch saying god i'd just like to see them win once in my in my lifetime you know well imagine how cubs fans are you know that's, well, that's, that's right same reason i rooted for the, for the well the cubs packers i i like the packers though because um look last year i don't like aaron Rodgers, and i never have i found him an arrogant snot when i interviewed him um i've met of their three big quote, you know, their three famous quarterbacks, Bart Starr, I met in the eighties when I was covering sports gentleman, great guy, uh, loved him to death. It was just as kind hearted as um, a man could be Brett Favre, uh, obviously kind of a redneck, but at the same time, I introduced my son to him. He was kind. He was outgoing with Aaron Rodgers is just a shit. So last year, Aaron Rodgers in the same position as Jordan love, didn't go to the playoffs, lost. And so I think Jordan Love has improved uh, a lot this season. I think he's uh, going to be the franchise quarterback going forward. The Packers have kind of hit the trifecta with, you know, it was Brett Favre and then Aaron Rodgers and now Jordan Love, three good quarterbacks in a row. That's very rare for a, a franchise to do. Um, so I, 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 and I like the fact that it faced with the same situation that Rodgers was faced with last year, Jordan Love came through and the Packers are in the playoffs. And John, I think you're right. I the Dallas Cowboys choke an awful lot. So they, I, I'm yeah, they find a way. They find a way <laughs> in the playoffs. They're Democrats. Lose. They find a way to snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory every time. And the, yeah, the, the the one thing I think Cowboys fans could feel somewhat confident about is um that this is a first year starting quarterback in, in Jordan love. That's and that's the youngest team today. in the playoffs, the Packers yeah. all overall are the youngest team in the playoffs. And a lot of times young quarterbacks um, to include Tom Brady, Peyton Manning and others have to struggle the first few times they're in the playoffs. It's a different game. Everything changes uh, mistakes, you know, are just, are just really magnified. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if Dallas uh, pulls this one out and 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 Love just plays okay today, um, but they are the Cowboys and it is January. <laughs> they're and at home, small as we say it, <laughs> but they're at home. Yeah, they're Jerry. Yeah, they World. are at home, yeah. but it's also going to be cold there. So I, you know, that I we'll see how it goes. But isn't they, it a domed? Isn't it a domed stadium? No, it's isn't open. It? I they, believe. Can't they close the roof? In yeah, they. I, but it's still going to be cold. I, I'm, they're not going to heat it. I mean, 
I, I don't think if there's snow, there'll be snow on the field, but I, it'll still be cold, I, I believe. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Uh, I, I will say that this. Would I, be a, it would be a first, really, Brian, if you were wrong. <laughs> it, a, it, the it first is a in the last 30 seconds, but that's it. <laughs> AT&T Stadium has a retractable roof, and yeah. I haven't I – don't, I don't know if they're going to have it open or closed. Yeah, that's – um. And then, of course, Belichick is gone, and so is Nick Saban. That's the one that I really, you know, we'll, we'll close on that. How do you feel about Nick Saban and Belichick leaving? You know, Nick Saban said that he had been talking to his wife since midseason about this, and um, his metric was always, when I wake up in the morning and I'm no longer – excited about you know going to the facility going to practice going to the office and when i start to feel like i'm too tired to go to work and i can't give the players and my coaching staff because that's that's who you're really around every day right that's the whole thing when he couldn't give the staff and the players um as much as as he thought he could give he needed to give them then he would step away and then that's the conclusion that he and his wife came to and and I get it with the with the transfer portal and the NIL uh, name, image, and likeness. You're able to help the players get some money. You have to really recruit not only a new class of recruits. You have to kind of recruit your own team after every, every year. Season. So yeah, that's it's just more hours. It's just more work. And, and he's in his seventies, ah. and you know, and he's 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 you know filthy rich. So. You know, and go go enjoy the grandkids and enjoy retirement. And you know, if if Nick Saban misses it and wants to coach again, there will be no shortage of jobs. Well, and I'll say this: you know, Nick Saban, seventy-two years old, five years younger than uh, Donald Trump, eight years younger than uh, President Biden, is hanging it up to go with the grandkids. Gosh, I I I, I wish there were others who would follow that lead. Let's <laughs> I'll. I'll I'll just add that in there. Michael, you're going to miss him? Come on. It's Saban. So this is this is what I'm hoping. Saban for Senate. <laughs> I don't know what his politics are, but let him run against Tommy Tuberville. And... <laughs> well, at least, at least Coach Saban lives in the state of Alabama. And he'd yeah. win. <laughs> he'd probably, yeah, he would win. That's, would, it's yeah. Alabama. Give me a break. Yeah. Well, they, 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 they said that, you know, during the civil rights um, era, the Bear Bryant was the most powerful person in the, in the, in the state, way more so than the governor. Yeah. And that if yeah. he had only spoken out a little bit earlier about the importance of integrating, um, especially his football team, which, which got smoked by an integrated California team, UCLA, I think, or USA, I forget which, um, he could have moved race relations forward um, much more rapidly in the state, but he chose to remain silent. I don't know what his politics um, were, but 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 Sabin, but Sabin, Sabin running for um, Senate, especially were he a, a, a Democrat. Which would make that state election be riotous. Yes, um, that that would be a lot of fun. And you know, seventy-two years old um, in the Senate is you know sort of you know <laughs> relatively young. Well, hell, right. running for president these days, that would be younger <laughs> than either one of them. But uh, All right, so you, that's it. I'm I'm going to start printing the 
the T-shirt, Saban for Senate. Saban for Senate. There you go. But here's something for you, Michael. As powerful as Bear Bryant was in Alabama, he had to leave Kentucky. He was the coach at the University of Kentucky. Had Babe Pirelli play for him, who ended up in the, the NFL. And in fact, Bart Starr, who ended up the, you know, the quarterback of the first two Super Bowls, MVP, wanted to play for Bear, but uh, Bear went to Alabama. So guess what? So did Bart Starr. And the reason why he went to uh, Alabama is because in the state of Kentucky, he was not the most powerful person. That fell on a guy named Adolf, not Hitler, but Rupp, Adolf Rupp, who was as right wing, would never would never integrate his he did not integrate his basketball team until 1971 and was among the last to do it and lost an NCAA with Rupp's runs in the 60s because he would not integrate his team. So that tells you a little bit about how if you think Alabama's conservative folks, welcome to my home state, the Bluegrass State, where a guy named Adolph ruled for years. So the yeah, and and the and the basketball arena Notwithstanding that background, is named after him. Yeah, Yeah. Rupp Arena. Yep, yep, yeah. Went to the first game there. Anyway, guys, that's it for this week. I appreciate you uh, sticking around. Uh, John, where can we catch you, and what would you like to plug? Uh, Rollcall.com. We will be following all of the fun political news. (laughs) How's that for enthusiasm? (laughs) Boy, you sound enthused. (laughs) <laughs> it's gonna be a it's gonna be a rough spring, folks. We gotta uh-huh. get through winter first. All right, Michael, go ahead. Yeah, I've just learned how to spell the word doozy. It's gonna be a doozy. <laughs> That's right. I'm gonna be dizzy. It's gonna be such a doozy. <laughs> so my podcast is called That Said with Michael Zeldin, and we talk about books. Next week we have a really important book, which is. Uh, about uh, addiction and recovery um, by a woman named Jane Fox, who um, through cooking was able to overcome her addiction. And so if any one of you have loved ones who are addicted or or yourself addicted, and addicted means drug or alcohol, it's a really moving book. And then on the backside of it, the following week, it's Sanjay Gupta, a oh, uh, wow. neuroscientist from Emory and CNN analyst talking about brain health, how to maintain it and how to avoid cognitive decline. And uh, also incredibly interesting conversation. Well, and to avoid cognitive decline, I would limit my uh, interactions with Donald Trump, the Republican Party and most politicians. <clears throat> but that's just me. That's anyway. the the name of this podcast is Just Ask the Question. You can catch me on Salon uh, every week with a column. The name of the book in its third printing now is Free the Press. And I uh, want to thank everybody for listening and watching, for making us one of the top 30 podcasts and good pods. Thanks for joining us, and we will catch you next time.